I'm so happy to be here this morning. I'm happy that we're all here. <laughs> Real quick, we, we sometimes sing songs quickly and we can gloss over them, uh, but thank you, worship team, for that. It was awesome. Um, he rose and conquered the grave. That You sang that, not sure if you remember, but you sang that just a moment ago. Um, that the grave would represent like everything that is death, everything that we can't overcome. Yet Jesus rose and conquered the grave. Simple action, powerful, impossible. But he did it. And so that's what we declare. That, that, that is our belief this morning if we are in Christ that Jesus rose and conquered the grave. Yeah, for sure. It's okay to get excited, right? <laughs> like, we don't have to be stoic. Okay, so let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. You can turn in your pew Bible to page 984. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 this morning. So, Father, thank you for who you say we are. And, and, and actually, there's a precursor to that. You are. You've existed from before time. You began everything. You hold all things together. Simply, you are. And so we get to be because of you. Thank you. Order our hearts this morning in this way after you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so Colossians 3, 12 through 17. I'll just read it first. And then we'll get started. So, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on Love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I have a history, a long history of really poor choices. I mean like a really long history of poor choices. Um, many of those choices, they, they pertain to things that I thought might be cool in the moment. Or, or maybe I thought they would be funny or maybe it was me just kind of risking something that I thought would, would give me like a tremendous, exciting experience in the end. And you're like, well, like, what are you talking about? Aside from, you know, turning your life over to Christ. That was the biggest adventure, right? We, we like to speak in those simple terms. But I'm talking lower than that. <laughs> okay, I'm talking like jumping off an 80-foot cliff into water and not bothering to check the depth of water beforehand. Okay, I'm talking uh, about going skydiving with only an hour of training in a shed by some dude who I'm not really sure was certified. Okay? Or, or maybe it was um, borrowing my friend's Jeep in college and parking it inside the chapel on the stage and removing the wheels. All of these are purely hypothetical. Okay? 
But I want to just say something. To be fair, most of these choices, they had little long-lasting consequence. Unless, of course, you're talking about me rivaling someone else's foolishness. In that department, I'm pretty much a king. Okay? But I want to, to help us understand, they, they all illustrate the power of choice. I had to be very, I, hypothetically speaking, to steal my friend's Jeep without keys and, and, and wheel it up the hill and get it inside the chapel. I had to deceive the public safety, hypothetically. And um, I also had to figure out that we had about an eighth of an inch on either side of the mirrors to get it inside the chapel and then how to jack it up and take off the tires and, and everything just so that the next day when the president spoke, there'd be a Jeep behind him. It was really a great plan, and I saw things playing out so lovely in my mind, and then I had to answer to my resident director. Um, I graduated. It's okay. But here's, here's the deal. They illustrate the power of choice and the power of intention. Researchers at Cornell University estimate that we make 226.7 choices a day on food. Unless you're Matt Miller, which is like four. Okay. Mountain Dew, something brown, and well, maybe it's just two choices. So anyway, <laughs> Matt's an anomaly, but there's, we, that's just food, right? Other wild stats exist all over the internet that anywhere from like a few hundred to 35,000 choices, whether conscious or subconscious, that we make every day, every day. Dr. Joel Humans suggests that there are about six styles or strategies that we employ. So how do we make decisions might be a good way to say this. What do we do? How do I arrive at making decisions? He gives these as some examples for how people might make decisions. Impulsiveness. Think nothing of the stories I just told you. Okay? Impulsiveness. You do what feels good or seems fun in the moment. Or compliance, what's going to make everybody happy? Is that you? Or how about this, delegating. I'm a leader, I shouldn't have to do that, he should sweep the floor. I'm going to delegate that, I'm going to make that decision. Or, here's a big one, avoidance or deflection. This is just a simple one where we're like, I want to avoid or ignore decisions um, because I want to skirt the responsibility. I really don't want the responsibility if this goes sideways, so I'm just going to kind of uh, come over here and make the decision kind of quietly, passively. Or what about balancing? Like, well, isn't balancing and compliance kind of the same thing? I think balancing might be a little bit more along the lines of the, I'm going to eat ice cream and then I'm going to work out tomorrow morning. Just kind of like those two things are just going to kind of level out. That's balancing. It's using the best you can or making the best decision with the information available on both ends of the spectrum. Or how about this one? This one is really where I think Christians should land. Prioritizing and reflecting are ways that people make decisions. In this case, you're, you're putting the most energy and thought and prayer and wisdom into a decision that will have the longest cumulative impact. Isn't that about right? When we start to think about putting on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, humility, gentleness, right? Like when he starts listing all of those things, I think the link is obvious here. I think the link is obvious. Eugene Peterson, his translation of the scripture, the message translation, actually captures it really well. He says, so chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. God's the one who's determining what we're putting on. We are the ones who are coming with intention and moving toward him to make those decisions that would actually cultivate the character of Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. So if nothing else, uh, maybe reveal, uh, I think the next slide, you can bump it up there, uh, just this real simple idea of what we put on reveals who we are becoming. You know, Brady talked last week about putting off. And this week we're looking at putting on. And my encouragement to you is as we go through this message, I want you not to think of like the whole thing like all together and all the characteristics we're going to talk about. Just ask the Spirit of God, is there one thing? Is there one characteristic here that would be really helpful for me as I'm listening? And and maybe even a simpler way to frame it is to say, start where you are, not where you want to be. Meaning it takes time to get there. You didn't get to a place of disconnect and lack of union with Christ overnight, and you're probably not going to return there so quickly in terms of like deep fellowship. It takes time. It's important. So we start off then with this concept of putting on. That command in itself, it's a completed command. When he says put on, he's saying, I want you to do something that's already there. And maybe an easy way to look at it is every spring or winter, like twice a year, we end up kind of like doing the switch out of all the clothes in the kids' rooms. And do you know teenage boys don't like to wear what their mother bought them? They have like two shirts and a pair of sweatpants and some Crocs. And you're like, dude, we can totally do better than this. But apparently, the rest of the drawer remains untouched. (laughs) So what I'm talking about when I'm saying put on is look at what God has given you, and do you, do you typically stay in one vein? I'm just going to focus on one thing. Or is it wider than that? Do you have three or four drawers that you're not even opening? You're just content to fold the old shirt after it gets washed and put it back and then grab it tomorrow morning and put it back on. And so there are some characteristics here that need more attention. So today we're just going to be looking at the who, what, and why of our clothing and also the result of our clothing. So let's start there in verses 12 through 14. Paul talks about the who, the what, and the why of what we're told to put on or of our clothing. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when he starts his phrase by saying, as, maybe just also write in the margin of your Bible, because. Because you are chosen and holy and beloved. Have you ever thought about it like that? Even a slight breakdown is helpful. Chosen. That means you are seen, you are preferred, you are called out, you are chosen. We just sang about it. 
That's who you are. In Christ, that's who you are. Second, you are holy. A real simple way to explain not holiness, which is, you know, moral perfection, ritual perfection, actual righteousness. That's what we get because of Christ. But when it says you are holy, it means you are set apart for a specific use or purpose. That's why when I'm having a conversation with one of my children and I see that they are not behaving in a way that is consistent with the gospel of Christ, I might say something like this. Oh, son, I'm so sorry. That's not who you are. I don't want to emphasize what they did. I want to emphasize their identity because everything's going to continue to flow out from that spot. So I want to make sure they know who and whose they are. makes all the difference. And then last, it talks about beloved. Think about that for just a minute. That idea to have great affection or care or loyalty shown to or to be loved. Okay, now I want to park here for just a second, real quick. How many of you, is it really hard to just let somebody do something for you? Feel free to show your hands. This is like, It's hard for me, I'll be honest, to just let somebody do something for me. Some of us are like, nope, I got that taken care of. Like, I can totally put my feet up and let other people serve me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when when someone shows you an act of love over and against the way that you've acted or carried yourself, how hard is it just to say, okay, I receive? It's hard. Paul says, as you are chosen, holy, and beloved. Put these things on. Well, what are we putting on? First thing he mentions is compassionate hearts. And, and a compassionate heart is just, it's a heartfelt sympathy for those suffering or in need. As with everything, how did Jesus do this? And there are a myriad of examples. You could look at Jesus with the rich young ruler who he gives a very specific command to. Hey, go sell everything you have, right? And before the rich young ruler even answers, guess what Jesus does? It says, Jesus, looking on him, had compassion. When was the last time you knew somebody was going to spit in the face of your effort and your love and your affection and you looked on compassion? Do you do that? That's Jesus. Even when someone is going to mistreat him, he's going to look on them with love. Or like in Luke 7, when he sees this widow who's already lost her husband, now she has a young man or a son who's, who's a young man, probably like you know 13 to 18 range, who's also passed away. And they're bringing the casket out to the place of burial. And it says that Jesus sees her. And what does he do? It says he has compassion. He sees hurting or suffering. He can't help himself. Is that you? You can't help yourself when you see someone suffering? Or is it more often, yeah, well, if they would have, they wouldn't have this problem. Jesus shows us a compassionate heart. Paul tells us to put it on. Paul tells us also to put on kindness. You see this in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And and essentially, it's just a friendly or helpful attitude that meets the needs of others. That's pretty simple. 
I'm going to see a need and I'm going to engage it tangibly. That word kindness in classical Greek, meaning in the, in the Greek that we're seeing in the New Testament, is often used to describe, and I love this, it's used to describe wine that has grown mellow with age and it's lost its harshness. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with kindness? Let me tell you a story. So I like to take my kids on occasion for just like uh, a little um, coffee date, play, take some board games, play some games. And not long, ago, uh, not long ago, Pierce and I were headed to um, Zion Coffee. It's kind of a fun place. And we're driving there, and we come up uh, in downtown Peoria. We're, we're passing through some lights, and there's a car next to us. I can't even remember the car. Um, and I said, oh, Mike, do you like that car? He's like, yeah, I kind of like the design of it. And I said, oh, what, what makes you like it? And he goes, well... Um, have you noticed, like, it's, I like it because, because it's curvy. I'm like, okay. He's like, it's not boxy, you know, like sharp angles. So why does that matter? He goes, well, I was thinking the other day, like, when I do all the drawing and stuff that I do, have you ever noticed that all of the evil characters are sharp? They're all pointed? And I thought, man, that's an observation. <laughs> Just think about that really simple concept of like, here we are through age, through experience, through community, the sharp edges of my boxiness just gets carved off. That's kindness. I become kind when the sharp edges of me get carved off. Or Paul talks about humility. And humility is often talked about in the church. And you see this one come out in Romans 12, 3. You know, it's right after that famous passage of don't be conformed to the world any longer. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he gets to verse 3 and he says, uh, each of you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Which that applies to everyone in here. And then he says, but you ought to think of yourself with sober judgment. And then he goes on to say, according to the grace given you. Like, huh. So part of the way that I grow in my estimation of myself, in an accurate estimation of myself, is to grow, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you grow in unmerited favor? Have you ever thought that? That's how we define grace. Grace is unmerited favor. How do I grow in that? Hands open, receive, and just sit in it. You begin to grow by not rushing the process. And so humility, and you also see this in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, humility really carries with it this attitude of Christ. It's saying, I, I will take care of myself, right? Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, right? So God assumes that you are taking care of yourself in order that you can care for others. But C.S. Lewis said it best, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's a good estimation of self. That's what Paul is telling us to put on. Paul then tells us to put on meekness. And this is that Greek word that carries with it the idea of power under control. 
It's Isaiah 53, 7, where you see um, Jesus led like a lamb to the slaughter who, who had all authority, all strength, all power, and, and, and he kept his mouth silent. He was meek. He kept his strength under control. That's what we're told to put on. Or we're also told to put on patience. And this carries with it the idea of of patient endurance of pain or unhappiness. To bear the mistreatment from others without retaliation. Answer this in your heart. How many of you love to have the last word in an argument? There's probably like six of you in here. I love to have the last word in an argument. Like, I, I want to make sure that they know that they know that they lost to me. Maybe that's my competitive side coming out just a little bit. But there is this picture that I want to be somebody who ends up saying, you know what? Um, because 2 Peter 3, 9 and 15 talks about this idea that, that God is not slow, slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient with you. Why? Because he wants everybody to come to salvation. And that takes time. Just like relationships take time. So I demonstrate patience with the person who's irksome to me. The person who says things to me that intentionally dig and get under my skin. I don't retaliate because that's not what Jesus would do. I'm patient. I'm patient. Why? Because Jesus is patient with me. And then Paul tells us, about forgiveness. He says you ought to put on forgiveness to bear with someone else who's hurt you and wounded you. You see, sin creates a debt. First and foremost, our sin created a debt. Jesus paid it in full. No questions. But when you're sinned against, someone has created a debt to you. And so then you are in a place of meeting out payment. If someone mistreats me, if, if, if Katie says something mean to me and, and I respond by giving her the cold shoulder, by just freezing her out, not responding to texts, by when I see her at church, I just look at her and turn and walk the other way, I'm extracting a payment from her by doing that. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of the will that leads you to a place where reconciliation is possible. I can say I give up the right to extract payment from you, Katie, for what you said. Why? Because I've done it a thousand times with Jesus. I've done it a thousand times, and every time he's back, and he's waiting, and his arms are open wide, and he's saying, I forgive you. And guess what? Then our union can be restored. In the same way, how am I to move toward Katie if I feel like holding on to something and extracting payment doesn't somehow communicate that I'll do a better job of getting justice than God? That's crazy. That I think I'll do a better job of making her think about her sin and changing by how I'm treating her than forgiving her. I think this is one of the biggest ones. You talk about bitterness, you talk about resentment, you talk about struggle. It's because people can't forgive. And then Paul says, we've looked at the who, we've looked at the what. What about the why? And I won't go there for sake of time, but 1 John 4, 7 through 12 essentially just talks about how God is love. And, and it continues to go uh, in this way of 
We love because he first loved us, because he moved toward us. It's almost like you could put God at the center, and then you could have the hubs of like kindness, or the spokes of like kindness and meekness and humility and patience and forgiveness and Right? You could have all of those, and then the outside of the wheel is love. It's just holding it all together. The, and the, the way that I would explain that is just simply to say this. What's the motivation for Jesus being meek? It was love. What's the motivation for Jesus forgiving my sin? It's love. What's the motivation for Jesus demonstrating patience with me and with you and with all of us in our utter rebellion? It is love. So love holds all of those things together. And guess what love leads to? It leads to peace and to unity. That's key. It holds it all together. It informs it all. So then when we start to think about the result of our clothing. We want to think through who we are becoming by the deliberate choices that bring peace and worship and a right motivation. It's key. Three things that we see here in verses 15 through 17 are that um, we see Jesus given peace says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now you could um, see quickly in Ephesians, and I won't read it all, I'll just read a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. So I'll start in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Think of unity. And has broken down the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, again, peace and unity, in place of the two, so making one, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So when you put on the clothing of a compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get Jesus-given peace. This is what Jesus died to give. It's what he longs to see on a regular basis. I love that term, rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It could be even translated, um, let the peace of Christ be the factor determining the outcome in your hearts. That's powerful. Or maybe secondly, another result of putting on this clothing is that we have Jesus-fueled worship. Is there anything better? Would there be anything better than just pure, unadulterated worship of Jesus Christ? It's what we're here for. It's what we're made for. It's how we live says, let the word of Christ dwell or live in you richly. And it can also be translated, let the word of Christ dwell in you distinctively. Which I love. Because Paul goes on to say um, that it, it's not just limited to singing a psalm, a hymn, or a spiritual song. It, it also a- approaches the mind, talks about teaching. It approaches the will and admonishing Um, And then it gets to the affections with singing. And then it gets to this idea of your heart attitude with thankfulness. 
So when you put on these things, guess what's happening? You're actually getting peace. You're having worship be central. And not just worship just like with your mouth, with a song, but like your whole self. And then the last thing that I would say is um, a doing from being. And whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. By deliberate choices, whatever I do now is actually an act of worship to God. What I do is, is not to gain him. It's not to impress him. It's not to appease him or my conscience because he's already finished the work. It's a response. It's a partnership with what his spirit is doing in me. He accomplished it. I live it out. So back to my choices. While my cliff jumping, skydiving, and jeep stealing decisions were not habituated, praise God, (laughs) not made into habit, I can suggest from experience that choices can be made to put on the character of Christ regularly. It's important. And so when we think about how we wrap this up, I want to give an invitation. Okay? Invitations can be ignored. You can click maybe. That's an option. That's like the, the classic, I can't commit to something, so I'm just going to click maybe. Um, or you can say, yes, I'll go. But I want to give an invitation And and first, I want to frame it in this way. Would you dream with me for a moment? Just for a moment, pause everything and just dream with me. What would the culture of Northfield look like? What would the culture of Northfield look like if we took just one of these suggestions I'm about to give? Each one of us in this room actively took one of these suggestions to live into, to inhabit, to practice deeply. What would it look like? I'll give some options. Each one of them pertains to the who, what, and why of our clothing. Uh, First thing I'd say is just uh, the who. That's the identity piece. And I would say the invitation here for a practice is, is open up. Be vulnerable. Ask for prayer concerning your identity in Christ. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said to someone, like, if I see Mitch, and I'm talking to Mitch, and I'm having a conversation with him, and I say, you know what? This week, I've actually felt like uh, my value is in how I'm performing as a pastor more than anything. Like, that's just who I'm thinking of myself. Uh, Could you just pray for me? And then what Mitch might do is be like, yeah, man. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 together. Right? You are holy, chosen, blameless, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, loved. It's not about how good your sermon is, Doug. Sure would like it to be nice, but like, if it's not, I want to know that I can be reminded of who I am, not what I did. And then secondly, uh, look over that list. The compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, that list that we just had. And here's an invitation for a practice. Be interruptible. How many of you like your, your day to go as planned? Be honest. We, there are many of us who are like, I can't get through unless I got that to-do list, like rocking, right? Um, do you ever think that Jesus, if he was a to-do list person, would have been like the most frustrated guy on the planet? 
I do. Because like how many times is he walking from one place like, hey, 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 just, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's this person who died, not really here in another town. We were wondering if you could. And he just pauses, takes his time. So be interruptible. And then I think um, invite feedback. A couple weeks ago, uh, I, I took my boys on a little camp out and um, I invited feedback. And I asked questions like these. What's it like to be parented by me? What's it like to be loved by me? What's it like when I get angry? What's it like, right? I asked this question. I really didn't like the answer. I said, what's it like to be corrected by me? And Oliver, in his 15-year-old wisdom, goes, hmm, I guess it's mostly okay unless you're having a bad day with mom. I'm like, well, if your mother would get her act together... Right, <laughs> But the, the reality is, I invited feedback and I learned something. I learned that when I am struggling interpersonally with my wife, um, there, there are ways that the Lord wants to redeem me and change me with how I deal with my children. Right? I have adjacent trials that affect people near me. Maybe you're the same. Or the last practice I would say is the why... Set aside daily times of solitude. Maybe like five minutes. Set a little timer on your phone. Maybe put your phone on the other side of the room. Set a little timer and just, and just set it there and have a, a scripture or a word from scripture or a phrase that is the character of Christ and just dwell on it. Just meditate on it for five minutes. Don't try to get your whole reading plan done. Don't rush through things. Just dwell. Or maybe you're someone who is like, you know, I think I'd rather take like a 20-minute walk and do the same thing. You know, just take 20 minutes, have a word or a phrase or a verse that's in your mind, and just keep repeating it, dwelling on it, thanking the Lord for who he is, and see if it doesn't begin to shift. So let me pray for us as we close. For those of you who, who desire to have prayer, I'm sure uh, there will be others of us who are hanging around afterwards who would love to pray with you. Um, but more than anything... We want to dwell on this idea that um, <clears throat> what we put on reveals who we are becoming. What we put on reveals who we are becoming. So in Jesus' name, we just invite, Holy Spirit, your presence over our lives. We ask that you fill us for the task of going out um, first into our homes and into our workplaces and into our extended family relationships and all the dynamics of this week. And we just ask that you would have your way, that you would move in us to be humble. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.